Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, and whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, yet rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us did they minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Before we begin this evening, let's look in prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to be here tonight. Lord, we thank you for the the freedom, Lord, and the opportunity we have to come together to worship. Lord, we thank you for the singing and the prayers that have been offered up. We thank you, Father, that you have uh, saved us from our sins. And Lord, you've not merely placed us on neutral ground, but Father, you have given us your Son, your Spirit, and Lord, you've made us a part of your church. I pray, Lord, that this evening that you'd be pleased to bless the service. I pray and I ask, Father, for wisdom and an unction from on high as I strive to preach your word. I pray, Father, that you'd be the one to empower your word, to make your word real and effective in our hearts and lives. And above all, dear God, I pray that you'd be glorified and magnified in our midst tonight. In Jesus' name, I ask all these things. Amen. Thank you. You all can be seated. I do appreciate the privilege to be here tonight. It's, it's a, uh, to preach is a privilege, and to, to preach in, in someone else's pulpit is a privilege I don't take lightly. And so I do thank for the Holt and the, uh, the blessing, the privileges to be here to this evening. Uh, as we jump into our, our text for tonight, the clock says 4.47. I'm assuming that's accurate, so uh, we'll, uh, we'll, go, we'll go based off of that. Uh, here we have Peter's first epistle to Christians, many Christians that were uh, scattered about the regions, more or less, that were surrounding Rome. And the main theme that Peter addresses in this book, the theme that, uh, in a sense, everything is built off of, is actually that of suffering. Uh, during this time, I've, I've read, and those who are a lot more, a lot smarter than I am, you all can correct me afterwards, I've read that this epistle was written around AD 65, and it was specifically written to Christians that were living in Rome. Around that time, a fire was set to Rome, and many suspected that it was uh, Emperor Nero who set the fire for some political reasons, and in an effort to get himself out of the hot seat, no pun intended, he pinned the blame on the Christians, whom the Romans already didn't really like. 
Uh, for a while, to be a Christian, it was legal to be a Christian. And when that happened, they essentially illegalized Christianity and allowed the persecution of the Christians that were around. Uh, needless to say, this would have completely changed the lives of the Christians who were in Rome. And when the persecution started, uh, again, I've read that they all scattered from where they were, and that's actually why we have the list of places in verse number one. They all went to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so Peter, having a burden to comfort these fellow believers, he, he writes this epistle to them. And I, there's something fitting about that, considering who Peter was. Uh, of course, he was a firsthand witness to the sufferings of Christ, and sadly, he was a first-hand witness, and a, he was kind of, a, kind of a coward about it in a way. When they came to arrest Christ, uh, Peter, uh, Peter fled along with the other disciples. And as he followed at a distance, we're familiar with the story, he went on to even deny Jesus. And so there's a sense in which Peter wasn't really a stranger to persecution. And now all these years later, a, a more seasoned and a more mature Peter, a more spiritually grown Peter writes to these other believers in an effort to try to comfort them in all the suffering that they, they were going through. What I find interesting about this epistle is how practical actually it is. Now, uh, there's a lot of doctrine, of course, but without really spending too much time on expounding on the doctrinal beliefs that they held to, he jumps right into the practical aspect of it, as you would see there in verse number 13, where he writes, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And really starting there, he becomes immensely practical, which really goes on throughout the, uh, throughout the rest of the book. He addresses the believers in some broad uh, reminders that they need the calling which is placed upon their lives by God, even in the midst of suffering, uh, the kind of calling that's not null and void in the midst of suffering, which so many times, whether consciously or subconsciously, uh, we think so. And so he reminds them of that. And then we get to chapter number two, he gets into the topic of submission. I risked the church I pastor running me off by preaching through that, but I preached the last one last Sunday. I, they didn't fire me, that I know of at least. And so Peter reminds them that even in the midst of all this persecution, uh, they're to submit. You're to submit to your king, whether you like it or not. He wrote to servants and to slaves, they're to submit to their masters, whether they like it or not. Uh, they wrote to wives to submit to their husbands. Amen, husbands? I've got a few. Okay, that's good to hear. Uh, he wrote to husbands to dwell uh, with their wives according to knowledge, which if you're to tie that with Paul's epistle, we see an element of submission even there. And from there he goes on and on and he he becomes immensely practical as he tries to encourage the believers that were scattered throughout there. One question that comes to mind when we consider how practical Peter is is the question of uh, why? Why? When we suffer, we don't often like to be reminded of what we should be doing. We would rather be pitied We'd rather be uh, patted on the back, and we want someone to, to listen to us. Sadly, more often than not, we need to be reminded that there's something to do. <laughs> that even though we'd rather sit down and cry and coddle ourselves, uh, even though we'd rather sit down and, and just give up everything that we were trying to do or everything we were doing before the suffering began, uh, we, we just, we, we want to stop. Someone else will finish it. 
Last October, I am a little more klutzy than I want to believe that I am. I, I had a, a bad cold or, or something, and I, we, we are currently working on a house uh, that we're trying to get livable. And I'd gone there after I was sick, and I had to bring the trailer to, to haul off some junk, and I had uh, stepped onto the tongue of my trailer. I had to meet someone there who gave us a quote for some insulation. And I stepped up on the tongue of my trailer, and I stepped right back off and, and twisted my ankle. Now, in that moment, I was extremely angry, and then I was extremely concerned that the guy who I just shook his hand to, to get a quote from saw me fall. There's no way he didn't see me fall, and to actually make it worse, I found that he's a neighbor quite literally right across the road. But anyway, now in that moment, when my ankle was there hurting and throbbing, and I didn't cry for more than 20 minutes to tarnish my manly image, I, I was done. I could have sold the house, I could have set the house on fire, I was sick the whole week, I was cold, I was miserable, and now my ankle hurt, and I, I was just done. In that moment, if someone would have handed me $50 for the house, there's a very good possibility I would have taken it before my wife would have come out and murdered me. What was going on? I was in pain. When you're in pain, you don't care about anything else that you're supposed to do. All you care about is that it hurts. You don't care about your calling. You don't care about your responsibility. You don't care how, how good this house will be for you and the family. You don't care about your trailer being there to haul off all the trash to make some use out of the daylight you have left. All you care about is that it hurts and you want it to go away. And in that moment, nothing else matters. That aspect of suffering is true across the board. Whether you're physically hurt, whether you're mentally hurting, whether you're emotionally hurting, when you suffer, you almost have this type of amnesia that you, you just don't want to go on. There's, there's really no point in it. Now, if that's true for a big sissy like me when I twist my ankle, I could only imagine what it would be like if my president declared that if you're a Christian, everyone has the right to harm you to hurt you, to, to kill you. I read that under Nero, and again, you all can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but under Nero, they would kill the Christians, then put them up on stakes to light them on fire, to light the streets at night. I, I wouldn't want to live in a place like that. These poor believers were suffering. And again, as we have this amnesia that comes along with suffering, Peter writes to them not in a cold or uncaring way, not in a way that, that he, he, he is, he is uh, ignorant of their suffering, but he comes along beside them and say, hey, you all have something to do. You have a calling that God has placed upon your life. And even though life has drastically changed, you got to keep on going. That's kind of why one of his first major encouragements in verse 13 is, wherefore gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, pull yourself together. I'm not saying it's not going to go away. I'm not saying that, that the pain will magically disappear. But you have a job to do. And you're Christian. It doesn't matter which century we're living in. It doesn't matter who is king, who is president. It doesn't matter if you twist your ankle or not. We have a calling upon our lives many times to pull ourselves together and do what God has called us to do. Now, all of that is introduction to the second introduction, all right? So you all bear with me. You'll notice in verse number 13, he says, wherefore. Now, this is really significant because 
Peter doesn't start with verse number one and give us down to verse number two or so and then say, now, now, now that I've, now that I've introduced myself and now that I've introduced the situation, I'm reminding you, dear brother, dear sister, to gird up the loins of your mind. No, he, he, he lays a massive foundation before he gives them or before he reminds them of what they're called to do. Now, this wherefore ties very intimately back to verse number 10 where Peter says, of which uh, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. Now, before we can understand that passage, we have to ask the question, what salvation? Because obviously, we know that, that salvation has the connotation theologically of the gospel itself, but salvation is a, a broad term. Salvation for their work, salvation from their lost spouses, salvation from their king. What salvation is Peter talking about? Well, to answer that question, we actually have the first nine verses. Now bear with me for just a few minutes. It's now 448, I guess. I don't know. Let's look at these verses rather quickly. Now again, in verse number one, he introduces uh, himself. He gives the introduction of the epistle. Uh, now he says of them, all right? Now, as he expounds the gospel and just reminds them of the, the glory of the gospel, the first thing he says is, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, there's a lot that we could bring out from that, as we know, but the power of that phrase is the fact that they're reminded God knew them before the foundation of the world. Well, what does that mean in the context of their suffering? That means that what Nero is now doing, all the suffering that they are guilty of, all the pain they're going through, God knew about it. It didn't take him by surprise. God's not sitting back and saying, man, I thought Nero would be pretty bad, but that's actually terrible. No, God knows. God knows them intimately. God knows everything about them. And God knows especially the suffering that they were specifically called to. Now, carrying on for the sake of time, you'll notice there we have the gospel, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctification or the setting apart of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Peter reminds them that the entire Trinity itself was involved in the salvation of their souls. He says there again, the sprinkling of the blood which sealed their salvation, the fact that Jesus Christ came to this earth, he suffered on the cross and died not because he was a sinner, but for their sins, he says, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Now, I love verse three because he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's really significant. To bless God in its most simplest form, I think it was Brother Jeff Brown who preached a sermon on this, is to say good things about God. Now here's the thing, when you're suffering, you don't want to say anything good about anyone. But Peter reminds them that even in the midst of their suffering now, God is still worthy of all worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, notice, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. Now, not very far into it, he's reminding them they have hope. In the midst of all these terrible things happening, they have hope. But I, I like that he doesn't say that they're, they're, they're begotten unto hope. It's a lively hope. It's a hope that has basis for its very existence. Um... Again, I mentioned, and I'm going to use the illustration a lot, okay? I've used it to death at our church, so you all are fresh. You're a fresh crowd. 
uh, we've been working on this house. There's a fire in this house. There's some termite damage in this house. And uh, there were times it was, it is overwhelming. Now, can you all imagine if my precious little girl sitting right behind Brother Pearson, I had to say that because I don't think my precious little girl was Brother Pearson. It's the one behind him, for the record. <laughs> can you imagine if she Daddy, Daddy, I know you're stressed, Daddy, but I've got good news, Daddy. I'm going to help you work on the house. Now, that would be so precious, and I would love it. And she said some things like that. But that, that wouldn't be very hopeful for me. Why? Because she can barely pick up a hammer. Would she give me hope? Sure. Let's say she does. Would it be a lively hope? No. It's nothing against her. She can barely pick up a hammer. She doesn't know how to use a drill or an impact. She, she doesn't even know how to demolish a house, which is the easiest and most fun parts. But if a contractor with a team of 50 guys and said, hey, don't worry, we'll take care of this. You see the difference? Well, Peter is saying, hey, I know it's bad, but you have a hope. And it's not just any hope. It's a lively hope. It's not a baseless hope. It's a lively hope. Which begs the question, what makes it a lively hope? Notice he goes on to say there in the verse, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now that's really significant, all right? Because if he would have just said, by Jesus Christ, that'd be plenty for hope. It's by the Son of God himself, by the God-man, by God manifest in the flesh. That is the basis of our hope. But he has that one little important detail, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that's important because if you go back to the book of Matthew, we know the Pharisees hated Jesus and the religious leaders, right? And uh, John fills in the blanks for us and we know that on several occasions they, they tried to get him killed. And it's, it's amazing how Jesus would just get away. What Jesus told them, is it Matthew 12 or Matthew 13, that, that in three days... They destroy the temple in three days. You build it again, right? He told them sometime before he died that he would be raised from the dead. Now here's the thing. There is a sense, I say this carefully, everything that Jesus was doing up until the cross wasn't entirely new. What I mean by that, before you all get mad, is, do you remember what, was it Caiaphas who told the rest of them? I think it was Caiaphas, or maybe it was Gamaliel, I can't remember. He said, hey, there's no point in stressing out about this. Because you know what, this has happened before. There was that one guy who led an insurrection, but when he died, the, the insurrection ended. So what Jesus was doing, it was concerning, it was frustrating, but they thought if we could just kill Jesus, that that would put a stop to everything else. So guess what? From their perception, they killed Jesus. They crucified him. But I love how Matthew's gospel reads because after it was all said and done, they remember his words. Three days. And they are so paranoid, they go to Pilate and they tell Pilate, hey, set a guard over the tomb. You know, we don't want someone coming to steal his body and claiming that he was resurrected. And sure enough, Pilate agrees to it. And then you go on to read that Roman soldiers fainted when Jesus was alive. What does his resurrection tell us? It tells us it was all true. 
that he was the son of God. He is the son of God. His miracles, they were not a farce. His preaching, it was true preaching. His resurrection was the physical manifestation that Jesus was and is the son of God. So Peter is telling us the basis of your hope is not just the person of Jesus Christ. It's the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And the implications of that are vast. What can Nero do to them if their leader was raised from the dead? Who taught them they'd be raised from the dead? What can man do unto them? That's a good reminder for us, dear Christian. And thankfully, we live in a more or less free nation for now. But no matter what we're going through, we have a lively hope based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now he goes on here. He says... I'll have to speed up just a little bit for the sake of time. It's 449. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Now, now that's significant. We have an inheritance. Unlike any earthly inheritance, this inheritance is not, is not corruptible. It cannot be defiled. It'll never fade away. This, this inheritance, uh, we are kept by the power of God we're not keeping ourselves. We're not kept by the church. We're not kept by the pastor. We're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He says in verse 6, kind of switching gears a little bit, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. Peter's not ignoring it. He knows they're suffering. He knows they're going through some difficult things. And he reminds them in verse 7 that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, and whom though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. What's Peter doing? The short version is that he's reminding them that you know what? No matter how bad all of this gets, at the very end, you see Jesus again. It is what Brother, I think it was Brother Ron Crisp used to talk about the already, but not yet. Yeah, we're saved now, but we're also being saved, and one day we'll fully be sanctified, we'll fully be saved in that sense. Yeah, right now they're suffering. Right now things aren't all going good. Right now they've lost their jobs. Right now they've lost their homes. The day is coming. The day is coming. It'll all be behind them. Now, it's that gospel that he's getting at in verse number 10. It's not a salvation that's on the physical realm. It's not a salvation in a national sense. It's that salvation that Peter is alluding to. Now, bear with me. There's a second introduction for the night, all right? Now, bear with me. In verse number 10, he reminds them of something really really significant. Now remember, this is building up to verse number 13. He's still not giving us verse 13 yet. Why? Because he wants to remind us that way we take verse 13 seriously. So what does he say? He says there in verse 10, of which salvation, the gospel itself, the coming of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Now what Peter is telling us is that this salvation that he has witnessed, this salvation which they have received, this salvation that he's talking about, is, is, it's a concept 
that the prophets themselves were trying to figure out. Notice he goes on to say, searching what? Now you take that next phrase out of there. He's saying searching what time? Or what manner of time? The signs of the time, if you will. The Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Now what Peter is saying, for the sake of time, we'll shorten it just a little bit. What Peter is saying is that the prophets of old had no idea of what the gospel would be like. Now now think about it with me for just a minute. You go all the way back to Adam and Eve, right? And they sin against God, and we have the wonderful picture. Well, I say wonderful, the, the bloody yet powerful picture of God killing those animals to provide a covering for them, right? And then he gives Eve the promise that someone is going to come who will, who will uh, um, uh, crush the serpent's head and bruise his heel. That, that's a vague promise, would it be their son? Would it be their grandson? How and when would the curse be lifted? You fast forward a little bit to the time of Noah, and we have the ark, which is a wonderful picture of the gospel itself, where God gave Noah the plans, where God had to shut the door, where it was only the ark that could save them from the wrath of God as manifested through a flood. They, they, they had the glimpses of how God would save them. The prophets, they knew all that. But when God would speak to them and speak through them and give nations messages through the prophets, they had an idea of what the gospel would look like, but they never had a full picture. Therefore, they inquired diligently about it. How would God save sinners? How would God redeem the world? How would God deal with the problem of sin. So they, they inquired diligently. They searched what time? Maybe it'll be next week. Maybe it'll be a thousand years. They're there for what time this Messiah, this, this person would come. They're looking at the manner of time. Okay, we can't pin down the year. Let's look at everything that surrounds what the, the day and age will look like when Jesus comes. But the one thing that they know and we know about them is they had no idea. For everything that they were, for all the privileges that they had, and remember, they really looked up to the prophets, the Jewish nation, which kind of carried over into the Gentile Christians. But Peter's reminding them they had no idea. Now, let's think about that for just a minute. All throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, there were glimpses, just glimpses of the gospel, small glimpses. Some were big, some were smaller, but that's all they were. We considered Adam and Eve and the promise given to them. We, we considered Noah. You fast forward a little bit more and, and we come to Abraham and his son. Abraham, what did he say? Thy son, thine only son, he'd offer up Isaac as a burnt offering. If that's not the picture of the gospel, I don't know what is. But then he obeys God and he takes Isaac to the top of that mountain. He ties Isaac up, lays him on the altar, and he looks up and lo and behold, a ram is caught 
in the thicket. If that's not substitutional atonement, I don't know what is. You go on a little bit further and we have the Mosaic Law. We have glimpses in the Mosaic Law. We learn something of the animal sacrifices. We learn something of the scapegoat where the the sin of the, the nation of Israel is imputed to the scapegoat, right? We have the cities of refuge where someone could flee if they accidentally killed someone. We have all these glimpses. We have David and Bathsheba and Nathan, David, a man after God's own heart, is guilty of adultery, guilty of murder. Nathan comes and confronts David, and and, and David is pierced. And Nathan said, God hath put away thy sin. How? How can God put away David's sin? Did he just blink it away? Did he just magically make it go away? David didn't know. And all through the Old Testament, glimpses of what the gospel would be, but they had no idea. We have Jeremiah, where God speaks to Jeremiah and God says that the law be written on their hearts. How does that work? Is God going to do open heart surgery? No. God's spirit would indwell our hearts. The idea of right and wrong biblically would be in our hearts. God goes through Ezekiel and tells Ezekiel that he'll give them a a heart, he'll remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. They were dead, as dead as a stone in their sins, but he's going to make them alive. How does that work? They didn't know. You have Hosea, which is a wonderful picture of God's unconditional love for his people. Isaiah, you go marry a prostitute and you're going to love that woman. As as she's a prostitute to you, my people are a prostitute to me. They're going to other lovers. Throughout the Old Testament, glimpses and only glimpses, the power and glory and significance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they didn't know. They inquired diligently. Notice what Peter goes on to say. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but dear church, dear Christian, notice this, but unto us. Who are we compared to Abraham? Who are we compared to Isaiah? Who are we compared to Jeremiah? We're nobodies. And yet they did not see the full picture of the gospel. And dear church, dear Christian, we have... But unto us, Peter goes on to say, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them which have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. The point that Peter is reminding them, these people of whom we don't even know their names, you all are part of something that the prophets for for thousands of years have tried to figure out. You You all are the recipients of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that not even Isaiah knew about. We received it. That's us. We can pause for just a moment and and make note of how often we take that for granted, don't we? We take the Gospel and and treat it lightly and pretend it's, it's not that big of a deal. It grows common to us. We lose the, the wonder of its eternal significance. Was it revealed to them, but unto us? He goes on to say before verse number 13, you'll notice, which things the angels desire to look into. Bam. 
Not only was it a mystery to the Old Testament saints, but the angels, they didn't know. Now, for just a moment, think about it from their perspective, right? Um, there was an angel, one of the most beautiful angels, we're told. He had one proud thought, and he got kicked out of heaven. Just a thought. I didn't read that Lucifer went to Home Depot to, to get some 4 by 4 posts to start building that throne. All he thought was, I will be like the Most High. And that was enough to condemn him for all of eternity. The angels knew something of the justice of God. You do not cross that line. And then Adam sins. Adam doesn't even just think about it. Adam goes on to commit the sin, and they get a promise. The angel's going to get a promise, but humanity does? They, they, they look at that David and Bathsheba. Oh, David did it now. We know he was a man after God's own heart. We know he, but he, but he did it now. But God's put away his sin? They, were, they are firsthand witnesses to the justice of God. But when God showed mercy, it would seem... They're surprised by it. And you fast forward all the way to the cross. If there's one thing they knew, and one thing we know from the Old Testament, God cares for those who follow him, and he doesn't care for them who don't follow him. We actually see this in, in uh, chapter 3. He quotes from the Old Testament, uh, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, which, which means he keeps an eye on them as a parent lovingly watches over their children, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. So as long as you're obeying God and following God, you have God's favor. But lo and behold, there on the cross, it's not Peter or Paul. It's not David or Abraham. But it's Jesus the Christ who did no sin. He was, in every sense of the word, perfect. Wrongly accused. You go back to Matthew. They had to make something up to get it to stick, to get Pilate's sign off that they could crucify him. They had to make something up. The whole trial itself was unfair. And then they sentenced him to death as if he was a thief. As if he was a murderer. The holy, spotless Lamb of God hung on that cross as if he was the worst of worst sinners. Now, I don't have a chapter and verse for this, so I don't say it dogmatically. But I can't help but think. The angels are sitting back thinking, oh, they're going to get it now. God doesn't turn his back on those that love him. God does not turn his back on those who follow him. God does not turn his back on those who do his will. God's favor is, for, is, is with them that follow him. If there was ever a person who followed God, it was his own dear son. And they would have thought, 
They're going to get it now. The Romans are going to see God's going to split the heavens open and rescue his son. His disciples will see that they should have been cowards. They should have all followed him. They thought that in that moment, God would avenge his son. But guess what? The opposite happened. Jesus is on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What? If there's anyone who ever lived perfectly, it was Jesus Christ. If there's anyone who never deserved to have God turn his back on them, it was Jesus Christ. And yet the one person in history, for the first time, God forsakes his own son. And I could imagine the angels, again, I don't say it dogmatically, but the angels are sitting back thinking, what happened? They diligent, they, which things the angels did desire to look into. Y'all ever become curious about something little and you decide just to watch, see what happens? You know, when I was a kid, I liked to take a magnifying glass to an anthill. And when I got older, I actually liked to sit and watch the anthill and then kick it over. <laughs> Y'all ever stop to think that angels are watching you all's lives right now, looking into what in the world God has done to save you of all people? You didn't save any of the angels. No promise was given to them saved us. He saved us. Of which the angels desire to look into. My point is, dear Christian, is that these Christians are suffering. But I, I, I can't help but think that Peter had a great burden to remind them, you know what? It's not all for naught. God's not forgotten about you. You're part of something so much bigger than you realize. You're part of something that the the prophets never fully understood. You're part of something that the angels are still looking into. That was true for them, for those Christians back then, and dear Christian, it's true for you now. No matter what you're going through, don't forget you're part of something so much bigger And you realize. And then we have verse 13. (laughs) Wherefore. Now we won't get into all of that for the sake of time, but I simply want us to see here. There's our call to arms, if you will. (laughs) Peter's getting him riled up. Peter's reminding him, hey, you know what? You've seen the gospel. Now because you are recipients of something eternally and transcendently Powerful and glorious. Time to step up, gird up the loins of your mind. We got a job to do. Now, there's a lot to unpack from that verse, and, and we're not for the sake of time. I was hoping Brother Tim wouldn't tell everyone where the food was so y'all could stay longer, but that's okay. I just want to point this out. And again, there's a lot more that, that goes along with this. But this first command that comes from the realization, the reminder of the gospel, in a way can be summed up in this, in verse 15, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, 
Be holy. Why? For I am holy. Here's my, my summarizing point. Summarize several verses. Your call, dear Christian, is to be holy. Now, in a comfortable uh, sanctuary on padded pews, that's an easy call. But when your king declares it's okay for you to be killed, and <laughs> let's not just kill you, it's going to stake you up on, on, uh, on poles to light the streets at night, the call to be holy is a little bit different. But catch this, dear Christian, the call didn't change. We're still supposed to be holy. The significance of that is great. Again, I won't get into all of it for the sake of time. We're not called to be moral like the Pharisees. We're not called to be, uh, we're not called to be religious in, this, in that sense. We're called to be holy, which is the calling of all callings. We're to be set apart. We're not to be like the rest of the world. He kind of expounds on that in chapter number two. We're called to be holy. Now, my, my point in all of this is, is, well, several different things. But first of all, there may be someone here tonight and, and you're suffering for one reason or another. And I, I certainly don't want to make light of that. strange thing about suffering is how subjective it is. So I, I can't know, fully know what you're going through, but I simply want to remind you, if you're a Christian, don't forget the Son of God gave His life for you. And dear Christian, take time. There's a time to weep. I realize that. I appreciate that a little too much sometimes. But don't forget your callings to be holy because your Father which is in heaven is holy. Maybe you're here tonight and, again, you suffer from that strange amnesia when the pain sets in, right? Be holy, dear Christian. But lastly, maybe there's someone here tonight and you are without Christ. You don't know Him. You, you appreciate Him. That's why you're here tonight, even, maybe. But you don't know Him. Sadly, the comfort that Peter gives to these Christians, dear sinner, it's not necessarily written to you. Furthermore, we're warned in the book of Hebrews, if I may put it, if I may paraphrase it for the sake of time, you better not take lightly the work of Christ. And yet there are so many sinners who would exalt their own good works over the sacrifice of the God-man. Careful, dear sinner. But lastly, I would say this. The Bible tells us that today is a day of salvation. When Jesus was here, he said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. Dear sinner, the invitation is still open. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. Certainly not guaranteed Monday or Tuesday or next week or next month. But today is a day of salvation. I would, I would strongly encourage you to look to Christ while you have time. It's not going to make all your problems disappear. It doesn't make the suffering any less painful. Arguably, it actually makes it worse. <laughs> but the good news is you'll have God on your side directing your steps, giving you the strength to get through it, giving you the comfort that you need. But dear sinner, you must look to Christ before you can claim any of those promises. Turn to Jesus before it's too late.